0: and i want to preach today on what shall the lord of the vineyard do what shall the lord of the vineyard do <clears throat> mark chapter 12 and verse 1 really a lot of this message is going to center around a thing called stewardship what it means to be a steward and what God calls of you to be a steward and what he expects of his believers and his church and people that he entrusts with things and gives responsibility to. The Bible says that if you're given a lot, a lot will be expected of you. If a little is given to you, don't worry about it. Very little is going to be expected of you. But if you're given a lot, then a lot is going to be expected of you. And then everybody who's born again, they've been given a lot. They've been given this salvation. And the Bible says, how can we go on if we neglect so great a salvation? We are stewards over this thing. So we're going to go through a number of different things as we look at this thing called stewardship, or at least that's one aspect of it. The message title, what shall the Lord of the vineyard do? Mark chapter 12 and verse 1. And he began to speak unto them by parables. A certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it and digged a place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to the husbandmen and went into a far country. And at the season, he sent the husbandmen a servant that he might receive from the husbandmen of the fruit of the vineyard. And they caught him and beat him and sent him away empty. And again, he sent unto them another servant and at him they cast stones And wounded him in the head, and sent him away shamefully handled. And again he sent another, and him they killed, and many others, beating some, killing some. And having yet therefore one son, his well-beloved, he sent him also last unto them, saying, They will reverence my son. But those husbandmen said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, and the inheritance shall be ours." And they took him and killed him and cast him out of the vineyard. And shall therefore the Lord, what shall therefore the Lord of the harvest do? He will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And have ye not read this scripture? The stone which the builders rejected is become the head of the corner. This was the Lord's doing and and it is marvelous in our eyes. And they sought to lay hold on him, but feared the people, for they knew that he had spoken the parable against them, and they left him and went their way. Let's pray. Father, Lord, we ask you that you'd open up your word to us here today. That you 'd give us uh, somewhat more of an understanding of, of your Son, O oh God, and what it means to be a follower of your Son Jesus, Lord, we thank you, O oh Father, Lord, that you have entrusted much unto us, O oh God, and we thank you that you 've given us the grace, Lord, to handle Lord your affairs appropriately, and Lord, I just ask you that you might help us and teach us here today. I ask you, O oh Father, Lord, that you might encourage us and rebuke us here today, Lord, I ask you that you deal with us, O oh Father, and Lord God, I plead your precious blood upon us. Oh god lord i ask you lord that you cover our ears in your blood oh father lord that we might hear your word oh god and what the spirit has to say unto us oh god lord even help this preacher oh god lord to speak clearly on your behalf oh father lord not about you but for you oh father lord i pray oh god have mercy on us this congregation here today oh father and lord use mornings like these oh god Lord, to make us into that spotless bride oh father lord we ask it in jesus mighty name amen Amen. This is the parable that Jesus tells just after he arrives into Jerusalem. In that chapter you'll read, that's when they take down the palm leaves and they sing Hosanna, Hosanna in the highest. He comes to Jerusalem with great jubilation. And then he does a number of things, but very soon after he arrives, this is one of the things that we read about. We know that this parable is speaking about the Jews who rejected the prophets before Jesus and then Jesus himself. This parable is a very interesting one because often people think that parables Jesus told them to help people to understand what he had to say. But that is not the case. He told parables to hide information from those that were not to have the information and to reveal unto those that had information ears to hear you read it often in the bible he that had ears to hear let him hear what the spirit says oftentimes even those that he was speaking to didn't even understand peter often not afraid to ask a stupid question says master please explain this parable unto us but this one's different they knew who he was talking about straight away it says that they understood that he talked to them he made it as clear as he possibly could they knew that he was speaking to them and they tried to hold on to him but they didn't because they, they were afraid that the mob, the people that were singing Hosanna in the highest, that they might turn on those high priests and the religious establishment of the day. So this parable, for the most part, it's speaking, about, uh, it's speaking about Israel. It's speaking about the people of God. And it's speaking about how ultimately they rejected the Son of God. And then that, 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 um, that inheritance was then given over unto the Gentiles. It was taken away from the Jews because they reviled it. You see, the Jews re- rejected Christ. And so the man who planted the vineyard, God our Father, will give that vineyard unto others. They, they they made a mess of it. They took that thing and they they treated it very, very wrongly. And so God is not just going to leave it like that. Our Bible says God will not be mocked. And that even goes for people who call themselves the, uh, part of the kingdom. You know, it says here in verse one, a certain man planted a vineyard and set a hedge about it, dig the place for the wine fat and built a tower and let it out to the husbandmen. That word, as we understand, means to rent out. You often will see signs as you walk down the street of a vacant property and it says to let. That means to rent, often for a sum of money or for some kind of fee. This man who planted the vineyard, he did not do that for free. He did not do that just because he loved those husbandmen. He did not make it so that he could hand it over to these corrupt men so that they could scorn him and mock him and leave it as it is. He did it because he was seeking the first fruits. He was looking for something. He was looking for a return on his investment. He was going and he was planting the vineyard. That's not an easy job. He hedged it about. If you've ever had to put a hedge or a fence in something, it's not an easy job. And they did not have power tools or big augers back then. This is work. He digged the place for the wine vat. That means that he put a vat to take of all of the juice after it's crushed so that it could be collected afterwards and built a tower so he has covered all basis. He has prepared something that's perfect for these husbandmen to take and run with it. No excuses, none whatsoever. God has poured himself, or this man has poured himself into this vineyard. It's the perfect situation. It is the perfect infrastructure so that you might be able to, in this situation, appropriately make grape juice. See, he's given them everything that they possibly need. And everything I'm saying has a natural and a spiritual aspect to you as the church. He's given you everything that you could possibly need to walk with him. No excuses. Yes. He has built a perfect infrastructure for you to take that thing and to run with it and he did not do it just so that you could have a nice life so that you could live in the west and have a nice you could have your tv your two cars your two and a half children all of those things far from it god did it because he's looking for something back he himself in our kids is looking for a godly seed he himself is looking for a return on his investment when he gives you a pound he's expecting a few pounds in return He's looking for it, saints of God, and we treat this very, very lightly. Says in verse 2, at the season he sent to the husbandman the servant, that he might receive from the husbandman the fruit of the vine. You know, it says here, at the season, our God is not a hard taskmaster. He did not come after the first month and say, Give me my rent, give me my money. I'm looking for this. He waited till they had fruit. He waited for the season. God doesn't expect the same thing of a new believer that he does of an old believer. God does not expect a a return of all that he's poured into someone when they're one month or two months or three months walking with the Lord. But that person walking five years or 10 years, God is expecting something. You see, with my son, I'm expecting something. I don't want to be holding his hand walking around these streets when he's 30 years of age. People are going to look at me and think that he's strange or I'm strange. It's one or the other. I'm looking for something. I'm looking for a maturity, I'm looking for him to someday minister to me. When I'm older, maybe there'll be a time in my life, or more than likely there will be a time in my life where I will need his help for me to function appropriately. You see, he doesn't get to just grow up, be a teenager, eat all my food for all his life, live in my spare room, destroy my house, and then go off and do whatever it is that he wants and then leave me to die in an old people's home. I'm not having it. I'll come back and haunt him if I die and that happens, right? I'm looking for somebody in this church to say something to him. Saying to God, Honestly, we pour in expecting something to come back. If that doesn't come back on me, then I've failed in my duty as a parent. We have a heavenly father. He is a parent. This is what is described. Our God is described often as God the Father. That's not an accident. It's not a nice name. It is to describe a characteristic of our God. And like a parent, he raises us up to a level of maturity that we would stand on our own two feet and then minister back to him. Minister back to him. Look at Mary of Bethany. What did she do? She took that ointment, smashed it at his feet the week that he was going to die. Why? Because she loved him. She ministered unto him. Judas was looking, wondering, oh, that could have cost so much money. You see, Judas didn't know what it was to minister to others. He's always thinking of himself, always thinking of his own ambitions, his own plans. He's thinking about him. He's even thinking about the poor people. But he is not thinking about Jesus Christ the saviour of the world. But saints of God, we should. We should not be in a state of immaturity all of our lives because God has not allowed for that. God does not want that for us. He gives us much and so he does expect much for us. Man has developed and there is a man who developed and established this vineyard so that he could enjoy the fruits so that God himself could enjoy the fruits of it. God brought Israel out of Egypt. Why? To serve him in the wilderness. Uh, God washes his bride in the world. That's what the Bible says. Jesus washes his bride in the world. Why? That he might present her back to himself. A spotless bride. You see our God. Though he did the most selfish, selfless. Sacrificial act of all of human existence. He did that to show us. Uh, what it was to live as a Christian. He did that to wash us of our sins. But he also did it that for the joy that was set before him. For glory. Because down here he was the lamb. But up there when he comes back he's going to rule with a rod of iron. He is going to receive worship. He is going to receive worship. You're either going to willingly bend the knee here on this earth. Or God is going to bend your knee someday. The Bible says that every knee shall bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. It's your decision. Do you want to do it willingly or do you want him to bend your knee with that rod of iron? It's up to us. He expects worship. He demands worship. He desires worship. That's what he expects of us. He didn't just die on the cross so that we could just live our own lives, but he did it so that we might minister back to him. You see, this landlord, they sent, where, sorry, the landlord sent his servants to recover the fruits of the vineyard in the appropriate season that's very very important in the appropriate season to recover the fruits and they rejected his servants first they caught the first servant they beat him and they sent him away second they cast stones at the next servant wounded him in the head and sent him away shamefully third they killed the servants it says plural and they beat them and then fourth When the landlord sent his son, they said among themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him, that the inheritance shall be ours. This is what it looks like to walk outside of Christ, but to have a semblance of religion these types of people inhabit our churches nowadays this is what our churches are full of they have no desire to follow god but they are more interested in what can do god do for them it is a seeker sensitive from these seeker sensitive churches they've raised up narcissistic believers that are only self-centered and not god-focused this entire church not just limerick city church but the church is built to worship Jesus. Built to worship God. It is not built so that you could have a nice life. That is a nice byproduct. This is the path to peace. I don't think any one of you will say that your life outside of Christ, while you were dead in your sins, in your drugs, your idolatry, all manners of bondage, that that life was better than this life. But can I tell you, that's not the purpose. If that's your purpose, you'd just as well be going to rehab. Maybe that might be your purpose at the start. But over time God's gonna teach you that hang on, this is this is not your focus. Your focus is for my kingdom, to build my kingdom. And so this is what they did. When they got their opportunity, they saw this son coming and they said, Let's kill him and this whole thing's gonna be ours. It's like the modern day pastors who have overtaken churches, they have become the heads of their churches, their rule rules in those churches and not the word of God. God's going to judge those men. God's going to judge those men very, very severely because they have been entrusted with his bride and they have dealt wickedly with it. You see, they intended to take ownership on something that they were never supposed to own. I'll say that again. They intended to take ownership on something that they were never supposed to own. The landlord never gave them ownership Um, of the vineyard, but stewardship. There is a big difference. To be an owner of something means it belongs to you. You have ultimate authority over that thing, but to be a steward of something means that that thing has been entrusted into your care to be taken care of. Once you got born again, once you got saved, everything that you own, your entire life, you became a steward of. None of those things became yours anymore. Your life itself is not even yours to decide what you're going to do with it if you've repented of your sins and you are born again you are a steward of that body that you live in this is why we don't believe in smoking one of the many reasons because you're a steward of that body and God said I gave you a body you filled it with tar you know if you don't think that you're going to get judged for such a thing someday then you're going to sorely sorely mistaken God has made us stewards those cars every single one of us or most of us we have a motor vehicle do we use it for the glory of God or do we treat it like its own? Our houses, oh, we we went to the bank, we got the mortgage, we pay the rent, it's our house. No, it's most definitely not. Your finances, you know, we say, oh, 10% goes to God, 90% is mine. No, it's not. 100% is God. 10% has to go to the church. And you know what? It's because of the hardness of your hearts that God commanded that you give 10%. Otherwise, none of you, I know you, none of you would give the money. You'd hold on to it too too long. Saying to God, that 10% is God's. That 10% is used for the healthy function of the local church. These lights, they do not stay on themselves. The food, the soup, that does not, Musgraves aren't a charity and they do not give to churches for free, unfortunately. There is practical things that are used for that. And those, that's just the base level. Your money, if, if, if there is a surplus, then goes to running schools in Africa, goes to running schools here in Europe, in Ireland, goes to supporting people who do schools, all of those sorts of things. But that all comes from that tithe. But the tide is one thing. I'm not even talking about the tide here today. I'm not talking about stewardship over the tide. That's not yours. That's God's. You sh- that shouldn't even be that shouldn't even be thinking in your head. That 10% is God's. You give it to him. But that other 90, you're made a steward of. God has given you that. What have you done with it? It's going to be a long process at that judgment seat, but he's going to open the balance sheet of your life and he's going to look at the income and expenditure and he's going to say, now did you really need that for my glory? And was that really for my glory? Was that for... So, Sofer was that for me. This is what God is going to do. Why? Because we're stewards of a thing. Even this church, this is not Brother Keith's church. Far from it. He is not the head of this church. He is an elder. He has a very important role and function here. But the church does not belong to him. The church does not even belong to Limerick City Church. It is not ours to decide what it is we're going to do with. You know, Brother Keith doesn't come and say, You know, I think we're just going to paint the walls green, turn off all the lights, strobe lighting, smoke machine and lasers. He does not have the liberty to do that. By the grace of God, he does not have the liberty to do that. Where does he get his liberty? From the word of God. How do we determine what it is and what we should do in the church from the word of God? How do we know if we're being good stewards over something, line it up with the word of God? The church is not ours. The church does not belong to the members. The church does not belong to the leaders. The church does not belong to Rick Warren or Joe. Well, their churches belong to them because they're not churches. Those are the churches of Joel Osteen and Rick Warren. That is a harlot. That is not a real church. But the real church does not belong to the real leaders. We've just been stewards. God's prepared it. God raises up his church. Jesus said, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. You see, that changes your thought process. You know, these children, as parents, we're stewards of these children. Elias is not mine to just do it as he pleases. You know, if, 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 I, was, uh, if I was given to, you know, uh, if you know, people abuse their children physically and all that sort of stuff, which is not what I agree with whatsoever. And if someone does that, God's going to take an account someday. If you ever got mad and you, you struck that child in anger in an ungodly manner, an ungodly way, God's going to take an account. Why? Because it's God's seed. It's not yours. God himself is seeking for a godly seed. I have been entrusted with the care of that child. So if I filled him with Coca-Cola from one morning, from, from the beginning of the day to the end of the day, to the point where his health was failing by the time he was 15, God will hold me accountable for those things. Saints, these things are not preached in the church of today because we preach a gospel, or not we, thankfully, in this church, but the church globally, for the most part, they preach a gospel that costs you nothing and is worth nothing. Nothing at all. It costs you nothing, it's worth nothing. Anything in your life that you treat with great care, you've probably paid a lot of money for it. You know, maybe it might be a nice garment, a nice dress, a wedding dress, or, or perhaps a, you know, a new car, you're always sketchy. Or, you know, we all remember the kids when we were teenagers got the nice new tackies from his mother and he could not go play tagging them because his mother would go nuts if he got grass stains on them. Why? Because they cost a lot of money. They were not cheap. But something that does not cost you much money and then it, it means nothing to you It's absolutely worthless. This is what it means to be a steward of something and not an owner of something. And forget this sense of ownership. You own nothing in your life. Do you know what, God? Maybe Klaus Schwab is trying to to copy God. You'll own nothing and be happy. Well, maybe we should change that to you'll be a steward of everything you own and you'll be joyous in the Lord. I don't know if it quite rolls off the tongue, but praise God. You know, Jesus here, he's quoting from the book of Isaiah. Anyone who ever tells you that the Old Testament isn't for today, or I heard a man say one time that when Jesus was on the earth, he didn't have a Bible. They're ignorant of what the scripture says. This parable, Jesus is referring back to Isaiah chapter 5, where it says, My well-beloved hath a vineyard in a very fruitful hill. He fenced it and gathered out the stones thereof, Planted it with choicest vine, built a tower in the midst of it, and also made a wine press therein, and he looked that it should bring forth grapes. He did not do it just for because it was something nice to look at. He did not do it just for the sake of it. So we so they could have nice worship music on a Sunday morning. He did it for the grapes. He did it for the good wine. He did it for 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 that expression of the Christian life working out. If you read of what the uh, uh, of what good wine is, it, it speaks of divinity. Jesus changed water into wine. It was the first miracle and not alcoholic wine. Don't get that mistaken. He changed it into grape juice. And so God did it. Why? He built this vineyard that he should bring back grapes. God does things with purpose. He's not a human. He's not like us. Sometimes we do things. We don't know why we did it. God does everything with a purpose and everything in his Bible is with a purpose. Now God explains to us what the vineyard is. He says, for the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah, his pleasant plant. It says in Isaiah five, that the vineyard is the people of Israel. And if the people are the vineyard, then he expects to reap from his people. So the husbandmen who were tasked with looking after the vineyard denied the servants of the father. And so what shall the Lord of the, harv- of the vineyard do? Watch, is he just going to stand idly by? Watch his, uh, watch his um, investment, watch his vineyard just be left to dereliction? Is he going to allow his profits just to be moved in, treated harshly and then just scorned? He's not going to do that. Turn with me in Luke chapter 5, please. We have another parable. Sorry, Luke chapter 19, Luke chapter 19. And it says, Luke chapter 19 and verse 12. A certain nobleman went into a far country to receive for himself a kingdom and to return. And he called his ten servants and delivered them ten pounds and said unto them, Occupy till I come. But his citizens hated him and sent a message after him saying, We will not have this man to reign over us. And it came to pass that when he was returned, having received the kingdom, then he commanded these servants to be called unto him to whom he had given the money. And he might know how much every man had gained by trading. Then came the first, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained ten pounds. And he said unto him, Well, thou good servant, because thou hast been faithful in very little, um, have thou authority over ten cities. And the second came, saying, Lord, thy pound hath gained five pounds. And he said likewise to him, Be thou also over five cities. And another came, and saying, Lord, Behold, here is thy pound, which I have kept laid up in a napkin. For I feared thee, because thou art an austere man. Thou takest up, that thou layest not down, and reapest, that thou didst not sow. And he saith unto him, Out of thine own mouth will I judge thee, thou wicked servant. Thou Thou knowest that I was an austere man, taking up, that I had laid not down, and reaping, that I did not sow. Wherefore then gavest not thou my money into the bank that at my coming I might have required mine own with usury, and he said unto them that stood by, take from the pound, te- sorry, take from him the pound and give it to him which hath, which hath sorry which hath ten pounds. And they said unto him, Lord, he hath ten pounds, for I say unto you that unto every one which with hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall he taken away from him, but those mine enemies which not that I, which would not, that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay before me. And when he had thus spoken before he ascending up to Jerusalem. So this is when he gave this parable. We have a parable of a nobleman who leaves ten pounds, or, or leaves a number of pounds with three servants while he goes away. And when he comes, he finds that two of the servants have been faithful with what they've given, and they were were given cities to rule over. Um, But there was one who did nothing with the pound, So this nobleman, you look that word up, it effectively denotes royalty. So a king of some description or maybe a prince or someone of a very high caste has given these people money and said, do something with it. He said, occupy till I come. This word occupy means to buy or sell or to trade. That's what this means. So he says, take this pound, do something with it. And I'm expecting that when I get back, there will be more for it. The men who were faithful each received one city to rule over for every pound they made. This is a very, very important point. Because the sinner out there will say that God is an austere God. But the saved person will understand that what they get back from the Lord is far more than what they've ever put in. All they did was make 10 pounds, right? For 10 pounds, they got 10 cities. That's a pretty good uh, wages if you were to ask me. The other guy, 5 pounds, got 5 cities. And so this is what it's like in the kingdom of God. Everything that you pour out, God is going to send back a hundredfold. You know, when I was younger, my dad's efforts to try get me to save money, Every fiver I put into the bank, he would double that money. Now, I never actually took him up on the offer. I wasn't very good at saving money. I liked to buy sweeties. But he made an attempt at that. Now, thankfully, our God is far better than my own uh, earthly father here. He gives you a far greater reward. But what you first have to do is take that step. If you take that pound, you wrap it up in a napkin, and you do nothing with it, you're going to get nothing. It's as simple as that. And God expects something of that pound. You see, he doesn't leave this man guiltless. He doesn't leave this man uh, and say, oh, don't worry about it, it's no problem. I found interesting about this man. It says, here you are, Lord, here's your pound. And I wrapped it in a napkin. He's giving the semblance that he has taken good stewardship over this pound, but that is not what God asked for. What we have nowadays are pastors who've raised up churches wrapped in napkins, trying to present them unto God, but it's, uh, it's not his bride. They're harlot churches. And so these things are freeing to those who are born again because... You don't have to come up with the pound. God's going to give it to you. You don't have to go devise new, wonderful ways to serve the Lord. He has already, at the point of salvation, handed it to you. And he says, if you're faithful with this, I'm going to give you a lot more. There's a lot more where that comes from but you need to prove yourself to be faithful in the least. That's what God does. And this is the God whom I serve. This is a God that every time I have done something for him, he has given it back in spades. And I'm not preaching a prosperity gospel here, but we must be careful that in an over, that we do not overcorrect from those prosperity preachers out there. God does want to see his kingdom flourish on this earth in a sense of he wants to add to his church. He does not desire that his church dwindle in numbers. He does not desire desire that his church uh, does not have enough money to keep the lights on or keep water running. God will present things back to people, but they need to be faithful people unto him. You see, this is very interesting with this this, uh, unfaithful servant. He says, for I feared thee because thou art an austere man. Now, it's interesting how the Bible lines this parable up. We see that this nobleman, has, who is a type of Christ, when you read about this nobleman, think about Jesus, okay? When you read about the people that were giving the money, think about the believers in Christ, or the people that profess to be believers. This is what Jesus is trying to communicate here. And so we have already seen this nobleman, which is Christ, hand out 10 cities, and he's handed out five cities. 15 cities in total, So why is it that this one slothful servant is the only one to call him austere? He's the only one who did nothing. You see, this slothful servant... He had made his mind up about this God already. Why? Because he knew nothing of this God. He says, thou takest... See, he should have just kept his mouth shut. But the problem is, flesh can't keep its mouth shut. Flesh tries to justify itself. If you're born again, you're walking in the spirit. You've been justified by the blood of Jesus. You don't try to justify yourself. Where you're in the flesh, you put the hand up and say, brother, sister, forgive me. I was operating in the flesh that was not godly. That was not Christ conforming in my life. But those who... Who are walking in the flesh, oh, they just point fingers. They just snap back. They're like a snake. You know, Jesus, when he was on that cross, said, I am a worm and no man. It says in Psalms 22, Jesus being a worm, what's, what's the devil? He's a snake. And what do you, we don't have snakes here in Ireland, thanks to St. Patrick. But because that's a joke. That's a joke, okay? It has we, we, nothing to do with reality. But snakes, they bite people, and they rear up. They have venom. They're vicious. Worms, you can do whatever it is you want with a worm. What does that signify? Humility. To, to be on a cross, say, I am a worm, and no man. Sna- worms don't defend themselves. They don't fight back. They do not have the capacity. They lie there and allow, they are meek in a sense of that. They allow anything of their aggressor to be done to them. And so this guy, what's he doing? He's opening his mouth, he's just, he's just whinging. He's trying to protect himself. He's making it everyone else's fault except him. Thou takest up where thou layest down not. Oh, you need to stop talking. You're railing accusations here. It says, so he's, he's actually saying that this person is a corrupt dealer, this, this, uh, this nobleman. He says, you're laying down, you're, you're taking up where you laid down not. You reap where you did not sow. Wait, hang on, who owns the pound? The pound that he was supposed to work with, where did that pound come from, and so this guy is saying that oh you're just you 're just lazy he 's talking about this nobleman who in, in that since the start of the parable we 've read how he 's given out um, a number of pounds to all these different guys he 's gone off to a far country to receive a kingdom i 've never received a kingdom I, pro- I, I, I postulate it 's probably a lot of work he 's come back he 's then given out fifteen cities. And then this guy has the gall, this guy has the gall to say, oh, you're just reaping where you've never sown. You're just lazy. What I read of this nobleman, he's a man working. People do that with Jesus. They level accusations at God. What has he ever done for me? Oh, this Christian life is so hard. God has not given me the tools to be able to walk with him. He has not made full provision. We'd never probably say those things, but we might think them sometimes. Uh, and if you are putting those things on your lip, then you need to be born again. You need to repent of such a sin. You see, the nobleman's going to meet him where he is, and in a in a in a sense, Christ is to you what you are to Christ. So he says that he said unto him, "Out of thine own mouth will I judge you. I'm austere. I'm going to be austere. I'm going to reap where I never saw. I'm going to do those things. Why? Because that's the way you pigeonholed th- that nobleman." That's what he's expecting. And if God is austere to you, if uh, if the heavens are closed to you, if the heavens are shut to you, (coughs) and you say, oh God, you've not provided enough for me to walk effectively, then you need to repent of such a thought process. It is not godly. It is not right. Thy grace is sufficient for thee, or my grace is sufficient for thee. Jesus said, where sin abounds, his grace does much more. So anybody who tries to excuse their sin they, they need to repent of such a behavior, and it 's if you 've fallen into sin i 'm not saying not preaching sinless perfection i 'm not even saying there 's not a path to recovery, but when you do fall don 't start slinging mud. Don't start casting stones. Don't start pointing the finger at the pastor. Don't start pointing the finger at the word of God. Don't start saying that, oh, this Bible is not really what it lines up to be. Don't do that. It's very dangerous. Yeah. God will not take pity on such a position. When you start, when you start casting accusations at somebody, God takes that very, very seriously. You know, it says in Jude that the archangel Michael didn't even rail an accusation at the devil, but he says, Lord rebuke thee. Yeah. And so we should not maybe you don't if you don't understand something best keep your mouth shut that's, right. that's how this works that, to have some integrity and say I'm not especially if you're new around these parts if you're new to this church you may not understand how things operate fully best to just talk to a brother about it quietly and if you don't think that's going to be profitable then mouth shut mm-hmm. don't make up opinions don't make up thoughts especially if you don't know what you're talking about Saints of God, we cannot be like this slothful servant. We absolutely cannot be. You see, the Bible tells us that we are to earnestly contend for the faith. Earnestly to contend for the faith. What does earnest mean? It means result, uh, resulting from or showing sincere and intense conviction. That's the way we're supposed to treat God. And it's sad because nowadays people say, oh, you can have your church on a Sunday and live whatever w- life you want to live out there Monday to Friday, as long as you're not doing too much sinning. You know, I mean, we all understand there's a certain amount is fine. This is what is preached from pulpits <clears throat> nowadays. So they, they, don't, they don't preach for life. I, I am talking to everybody here saying Christ is demanding your life. He is not demanding your Sundays. He's not demanding your Wednesdays. He's not looking for your Fridays. He said, if you want to follow me, take up your cross and follow me. This is the Christian life. Christianity is not another religion. You know, I met, a, I met a, one of my uh, old teachers from school before, Uh, that I haven't seen in years, you know, uh, just in a coffee shop. She was just there and said, hi. She said, oh, what are you up to? What are you up to? And uh, I said, you know, I got born again. And she said, you know, my my two aunts are born again in America. We love going to their church. They, you know, she, she goes there anytime they're in America. But she said at the end, yeah, yeah, great religion. And I I don't necessarily think religion is a dirty word, but I understand what she means. You've got Muslims, and they're a great religion, and you've got Christians, and that's a great religion. Jews, that's a great religion. Uh, These are great ways of living your life to the world, but that's not Christianity. Christianity is your life. It's not something you do. It's something you are. It's not a noun. It's a verb. It's an action word. It is a role. It's something that you do regularly. That's what a Christian is. You're not a Christian just because you come uh, to church on a Sunday. And I thank God that that's not it because if that's what what it was, that would have no power to change. That would have no power to save. That would have no power to overcome. But my Bible speaks about a walk with God and a saviour who cares that you can overcome. You can overcome sin. You can overcome thoughts. You can pull down strongholds. You can cast down imaginations for God himself by the power of his blood. I stand here today a redeemed sinner. A man who was once so addicted to drugs that it invaded every aspect of his life you see there's churches that I would go to they would have no hope for me be better off going to the rehab centers but here there is hope for those that are in sin for those that struggle with their minds for those that are struggling in their lives there is power here to change power here to overcome by the precious blood of the lamb by the precious blood of the lamb you know there's a this slothful servant I'll leave Matthew Henry tell us so it says for, you know, he says, For I feared thee thou art an austere man, thou takest up that thou layest thou not, and reapest that thou did not sow. Oh, I just can't get over that. It's amazing. Imagine saying to, imagine when God asks you to do something in your life, and you saying, no, 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 you know, you did nothing for this. You're standing on your own merit and saying, I did all of this. I took that pound. I wrapped that in a napkin all by myself. That's what it looks like when we try to stand on our own merit before God. You see, God has done everything. You've done nothing. And you know what? It's freeing because thankfully this pastor doesn't have to think up of new ideas or new ways. He is just a steward. God has prepared it and says, Brother Keith, look after this. Mind this for a time. And for that's a huge responsibility. But in a way, it's also a very big weight off your shoulders because you don't have to generate anything. In a sense, God builds his church. We just look after it and be faithful with what he has given us. Matthew Henry says, the great Bible expositor, Note, whatever may be the pretences of the slothful professors, not professor like college professor, but someone who professes with their mouth. Whatever may be the pretense of slothful professors in excuse of their slothfulness, the true reason of it is a reigning indifference to the interests of Christ and his kingdom and their coldness therein. So basically what he's saying is the slothful person who does nothing for the Lord the reason that they do nothing for the Lord is not because of what they're saying, but it's because they, have, they are indifferent towards the work of God. They're indifferent towards the kingdom. You see, this slothful servant, in, he was indifferent. He didn't lose the pound. He just left it and did nothing with it. And if you read of the nobleman's response to this man who did nothing with it, you would very, very, very worry for those that do nothing. You might say, oh, well, I'm I'm, I'm just coasting along my Christianity. I've never done any great works for the Lord, but I've never done anything bad for the Lord. That's not good enough. God says here, if you need to read the Bible, you need to open it up and see what happens to those that neglect to hear the word of God, who just leave it and do nothing with it. Why? Because it's, 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 it's such a corrupt heart attitude to have such an indifference towards those things. They care not, this is what Matthew Henry says, they care not whether the religion gets around or loses ground, so they can but live at ease says in Isaiah, woe, uh, woe unto them who are at ease in Zion. We should not be at ease, my friends. We live in a corrupt world. We live in a world that's after our kids, after our family members, after all of your friends. We live in a world that is fast on its way to hell, that hates the gospel. I think never in the history of the world have we probably ever had such a global hatred for the gospel across the world, or certainly across the western world. And yes, how can we be at ease in Zion? We sit and we care more about our lives. We fill our lives with distractions. You know, distractions, not necessarily bad ones, but we fill our lives so much with distractions we have no time for God. And so our our pound that God gave us is just over in the corner, but it's wrapped in a napkin so it doesn't get dusty. Mm-hmm. And we think that that is enough. Oh, saints, God, help us that we do not neglect the thing that God has given us. You see, Matthew Henry says, The pleas of the slothful professor when, he, when they come to be examined will be found more to their shame than to their justification. Let me read that again. The f- pleas of the slothful professor when they come to be examined will be found more to their shame than in their justification. So every excuse you have to not follow the Lord God does not consider them. In fact, it'll come to your shame. You might say, Oh, God, I didn't serve you because I have this thing on a Thursday night, and you know it's so important. God will say, Okay, so you favor that above me. Right, understood. Take note of that. God's not saying, Oh, yeah, we understand. Oh, I understand that you did nothing with the talent I gave you. God does not understand, saints. Maybe he understands for the infants in Christ babes in Christ who are on milk, but he has given you everything needed to mature you in a very rapid manner. We heard about uh, brother Thomas Walsh from hundreds of years ago. And at the age of 28, he was able to, he died having lived an unbelievably full life to the point where John Wesley was to say he was one of the greatest soul winners in the Methodist movement. If he only had a handful of them, he would reach uh, however many was it all of Ireland or the whole world, I can't remember. But saying to God, that's a very young man in a sense of uh, age. And he couldn't have been saved for that long. Was it 19 to 28, I think, is the period from which he was born again. So that's a 10-year-old, and yet he was able to shake nations, you don't have an excuse for being immature, in a sense, you have everything you need here to be mature you have everything available to you do you understand how lucky you are if you're in this church you have a Bible study on a Wednesday night not just a Bible study, but a very good Bible study, if you don't mind me saying so Brother Keith, we have been given a lot we have a prayer meeting on a Friday night that we rigidly adhere to every single Friday, and on Sundays it's almost impossible to get you bunch out of here so we have, we have been blessed by God we to have a very good congregation here of people that come but we need more we need to move on we need to press on we need to mature in these things because we can if you stand and say oh we've got a good bible study so we're not like them those those words will not actually be found words of commendation but of judgment when you face God because he'll say I gave you all of this they had nothing those people had very little to work with but you got loads, and so what did you do with that loads? I've often thought about it when I'm sitting in a, in a Wednesday night Bible study. Brother Keith's labored for however long he's labored to preach, and there's six of us sitting there, and I thought, man, how must that feel? Now, I know he's not moved by those things, hopefully, at this stage of his, his life, though it's hard not to be, but he's, and I'm sitting there. But from the flip side, from my side, there's six of us there, and I'm thinking, man, there is, this is unbelievably good teaching. This is being taught by a real man of God. And there's six of us hearing it. That's very weighty because God's going to say, what did you do with it? God's going to, this is long before YouTube, long before a room full of people. This is long before all of those things. There's a handful of us there. There's a great weight on those people. Oh, but Brother Soph, you, cannot, you can't preach that there's an expectation on congregation members. I absolutely can. Right. Because if there is no expectation on congregation members, forget about an expectation on the preacher. He said something, was it last week or the week before last, where he says, if you leave everything to me, the preacher, then you're going to kill me. You'll put me in an early grave. Why? Because this... Church is a body. It is not an organization that's run by Keith Malcolmson. This is a body of Christ, a living organism. If your hands and feet stopped working tomorrow and there was no one there to help you to be fed, then you're gonna starve pretty quickly. That's what it's like for a pastor if there's no one there to help. The Bible says, do not muzzle the, uh, the mouth of the ox that treads the corn. And I know that talks about finances and all those things. But in other things, you know, finances, forget about that. What about prayer? What about encouragement? What about texts? If you're not going to be here on a Friday or Wednesday, have you texted him to let him know? Or have you left him wondering? All of these things. There are ways that you can, you can support the body of Christ. Bible speaks about the body of Christ being many members and it holds up the head now the head is Christ but it holds up the head have you considered and thought about how you personally, not the person next to you, how you are going to hold up the head this week. What you are going to do, and I'm not preaching a works-based religion. I'm preaching I'm preaching works out of a heart response attitude that you've been given something, you just want to run with it. You just want to take it. I don't know if you've ever gotten a new car um, at some stage in your life, any of you that drive. When I was 17, on my 17th birthday, I got my provisional license, I got my car that was fully insured that day, and I drove that thing for 10 hours straight with all the lads in it. We just drove everywhere, all over Limerick City. We went all over the place, blaring tunes. I was not saved at the time. We, why? Because I, I was I knew I was getting the car and I was waiting six months. I was I literally drove out to Ennis to get my license stamped and I and I just so that I could have that thing so that I could drive around that day all over the place. Why? Because it was precious to me. I was looking to utilize it. Saints of God the pounds that God has given you should not be a burden. It should not be a millstone around your neck. But it should be something that you say, come on, let's do something with this. The best rugby teams in the world, they don't run away from the ball. They grab onto it. They run for it. They don't. When you get into some final of some cup, they don't start crying tears the night before and say, oh, I don't know what I'm going to do. They live for this moment. And that's what Christians are supposed to do. They live for this moment. They live to take that pound and say, Lord, I'm giving you 10 back, and I'm getting those 10 cities. We should, the Bible says that the kingdom of God suffereth violence, and the violent take it by force. By Bible says in Proverbs, there's four things that are wise in the sight of God. One of them is spiders. Why? Because they live in king's palaces and they take with their hands. That's heavenly etiquette. That's heavenly kids Say, God, give me that pound. I'm going to do something with it. I'm going to run with it. And no devil's going to hinder me. No circumstance is going to hinder me. We're going to reach this city for the Lord and we're going to see our family members saved. And I'm not going to sit and cry tears over all these other reasons of things that are hindering me. The devil trying to put stumbling blocks in our way. But we're going to go on because his grace is sufficient. His grace is sufficient. I'm cutting across the field, Brother Keith, okay? You know, it says in... It says in Jude that uh, we are to earnestly contend for the faith. And in Jude, it juxtaposes those people that earnestly contend. He tells this to the church. Earnestly contend to the faith, uh, contend to, uh, for the faith. And. Then he talks about these people and they've come in. They've come in unawares. So he says, I exhort you that ye should earnestly contend for the faith that was once delivered unto the saints. For there are certain men crept in unawares. Now in verse 12, he, he, he says what these certain men are. He says, these are spots in your feasts of charity. They feast with you, feeding themselves without fear you ever taken a Wednesday night Bible study? Have you not considered it and just left it fed without the fear of God, the reverence of God? And I'm not suggesting that you good saints of God are like these people, but we can at times be like this. But clouds they are without water, carried about of winds, trees whose fruit withereth without fruit, twice dead, plucked up by the roots. Matthew Henry says this, Clouds they are without water, which promise rain in time of drought, but perform nothing of what they promise. Such is the case of formal professors who at the first setting out promise much like early blossoming trees in a forward spring, but in conclusion bring forth little or no fruit. Trees whose fruit withereth, trees they are, for they are planted in the Lord's vineyard Yet fruitless. Observe those whose fruit uh, withereth may be justly said to be without fruit. It says, in, um, and I'll finish with this: Jesus. In this, it's interesting with these two parables. The first parable I started with. He preaches after he gets to Jerusalem. They're praising him. Hosanna in the highest! Hosanna in the highest! So that's after he comes to Jerusalem. The other one I told you about, the nobleman, that is just before he goes to Jerusalem. And then when he's in Jerusalem, this next event happens. And you don't have to turn there. It says, And on the morrow, when they were come from Bethany, he was hungry. And seeing a fig tree afar off having leaves, he came, if haply he might find anything thereon. And when he came to it, he found nothing but leaves." For the time of the figs was not yet. And Jesus answered and said unto him, No man eat fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. So the parable of the nobleman is just before Jesus enters into Jerusalem. And then after he arrives into Jerusalem, he encounters this fig tree. And after that, he tells the parable of the vineyard. And I believe they are all related. Because remember, this vineyard, that's the people of God. But remember, Jerusalem, that city was given to the Jews as an inheritance. They were given that God gave them that city. And what did they do? They crucified the king of glory there. So what did he do? He said, thank you very much. I'm taking that off you. Mm -hmm. You know, these kids, sometimes you can't give them things. There's things you'd love to give to them, but they're not mature enough. Because the reaction when you take it off is just so great that, you know, I can't give you that thing. I can't give it to you. They were given Jesus Christ. They were given all the prophets and they killed him on a tree outside the city walls. And so 36 years later... They sent the Roman army in and they leveled the whole thing. The Jews did not get back there until, I think, 1948. They did not get back there until the last hundred years. They did not get a land, why? Because God gave them something and they, they neglected it. God gave them something and they scorned it. They treated that thing wrongfully. They had Jerusalem, a beautiful area of the world, and then they left it. And so what was it given to? It was given unto everybody else, the Ottomans. It was given unto the Muslims. It was given unto loads of other people in that place because of what they've done. Now there's an Al-Aqsa mosque that sits where the temple used to be and it says there is only one God but Allah. Why? Because these men put the King of Glory on a tree. They killed him there and then. They scorned the place that God had prepared so for them. Saints, this has parallels for today. And so that's somewhat, uh, sorry, the, so the fig tree. Jesus was hungry and saw a fig tree and was showing signs which was showing signs of fruit. So he, the Bible specifically says Jesus was hungry. He didn't just go over for a teaching point. He did, this wasn't just there just to teach. If this frig tree was bearing fruit as it should have borne fruit, then he would have satisfied his hunger. Christ was going to this tree and he was looking for something. If you know what, uh, what trees represent in the Bible, it resigns humanity, people. That's why Jesus was a carpenter. He worked with timber. He worked with wood. The Bible in Psalm chapter one says, or Psalm number one, tree will be like trees planted by rivers of living water, bring f- forth fruit in their season. So Jesus was hungry. Jesus was looking to be ministered unto. What does he do? He goes to this fig tree, showing signs of fruit, but it's the wrong season. When he expected it further, he said he found nothing but leaves. Leaves are noisy. Do you ever hear leaves rustling in the wind? Leaves, birds sit in leaves, and they whistle at four or five o'clock in the morning. Leaves make loads of noise, but they do nothing. They don't bear fruit. I wonder even because, did, it, did he go to it because it looked like it had early blossoms? There's, there's something that suggests maybe that could be the case. And, but then he went and he found nothing. I believe this fig tree is representative of that person who bears no fruit. Clouds without water, trees whose fruit... That's what, it says in, in, um, that's what it says in Jude, nothing but leaves, saying to God, I don't want to be a Christian with nothing but leaves. When Jesus comes hungry, because he does that, he looks to be ministered unto. You think, oh, Jesus, he's the king of glory. He has everything. Well, hang on. He is preparing his bride for a reason there is a reason he is preparing his bride for. If you said, okay, he is all sufficient, all satisfied, he is completely content with everything, and that is the case, then why would he bother preparing a bride for him? Why does he need to be married? Why did God do anything? Why did he create Adam and Eve in the garden to commune with them? Could he not commune in the Godhead uh, up there in heaven before the things? Uh, These are things that I don't necessarily fully understand, but I do understand one thing, is that Jesus hungered at a time, and this fruit gave him, this tree gave him nothing. So the question is, what shall therefore the Lord of the vineyard do? is in the title of the message. What shall the Lord of the vineyard do? He will come and it says clearly in Mark, he will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. The Bible says in Revelation, take heed and be careful that no man steal your crown. He's not saying that just for fun. They didn't print that there because they're trying to fill out words in the book of Revelation. It's there for a reason. It's there because if you neglect this great salvation and if you take your pound that God has given you and you wrap it in a napkin and you leave it, God's going to take it away from you. Even this preacher, if I squander the place of preaching or devoted to other things, there may come a time where I'm not able to preach. There may come a time where if you squander this church, maybe there'll come a time where this church is not going to be here. And then those days you'll be crying tears, saying, oh God, I wish I just had one more meeting. Wish I just had one more conversation. Of tea or fellowship on a Sunday and you think, oh, well, that would never happen. Look at Jerusalem. Look to Jerusalem, 70 AD, and you had one of the worst raisings ever. When an army raises a place, completely flattens it, they left nothing. They salted the earth so that nothing would grow there afterwards. If you ever think that it's not possible that that would happen, look to Jerusalem and look at what the Jews had to go through all those years scattered in millions of different places. We have to look at the physical and take from it also the, the, sorry, look at the natural, take from it the spiritual. And I'm closing with this. So think about this from a sense of stewardship and what God means from these things. Before he goes to Jerusalem, he tells this story about the nobleman who who gave out the pounds. Those people did, did, uh, the one man did badly with it. And he said, and it also said those citizens hated him. And at the end of that, he said, take them, slay them, kill them. Because those citizens hated me. That's before he enters Jerusalem. He enters Jerusalem. He's, the people are fanning flames and fanning waves, uh, leaves at him and all that sort of stuff. And, but when he's hungry, that tree has nothing to offer him. And then just after that, he preaches this parable to the, he then finally speaks to those Pharisees. And he preaches the parable of the vineyard. And they understood exactly what he's meant. God cares a lot about the things that he has given to us and entrusted to us. The stewardship over the things and saying to God, we have to run with this. And you might say, oh, Brother Soph, that's a fairly hefty burden to run with. But it's not. It's not. God has given you everything. You look at this vineyard. It had everything to function as a vineyard. You just needed to work it. And you don't need to be a genius. You don't need to be talented. You don't need to have, uh, you know, an amazing education. You just need to be faithful. Just need to be faithful. That's all it requires. That's that's all God's looking for in in a person. At the end of the day, well done, thou good and faithful servant. That's what God's looking for. He's looking for a people that in their capacity earnestly contended for the faith. What does that word earnestly mean? Sincerely, with great conviction, contended for the faith that was given to them. Contended for this salvation that was laid into their lap. Contended for the vineyard that they've been placed in to work from and people that would not scorn the servants when they are brought to them. So what shall the Lord of the harvest do? Well, he says, he will come and destroy the husbandmen and will give the vineyard unto others. And then in Luke says, For I say unto you, that everyone, wi- uh, which hath, with hath, sorry, everyone which hath shall be given, and from him that hath not, even that he hath shall be taken away from him. So if you've done nothing with it, it will be taken away from you. But those mine enemies, which would not that I should reign over them, bring hither and slay them before me. Mark 11. And in the morning, as they passed by, they saw the fig tree dried up from its roots. And Peter, calling to remembrance, saith unto them, Master, behold, the fig tree which thou cursedest, it withereth away. Saints of God, don't wither away. God has put you as a tree planted by a river of water. If you're born again, you're here in this church. You are by a river of living water. You have to work hard to wither. You have to work hard to neglect those things because, because you, you've been given a lot. Saints, we are not here to wither away. We're here to grow forth fruit and fruit a hundredfold, not 60, not 70. We want to, We want to aim for the stars. We want to aim for God's glory, maximum amount of glory here on this earth. Before we leave, make your life here count for something. Use it for the glory of God. Stand with me. Father, we worship you. Let's just lift our hands. Father, Lord, we thank you, oh Father. Lord, for who you are, oh God. We praise you, oh God. Lord God, that you did not just leave us, oh Father. Lord, with a field and say, make a vineyard and work it but God you gave us all provision oh God and everything oh Father Lord I thank you oh Father Lord that you've helped us oh Father Lord to run with this gospel oh God you've given us oh Father Lord the the full armor of God oh Father Lord that we might stand in an evil hour oh Father Lord I ask you oh Father help us oh God Lord to see that victory already won oh Father and help us oh God to be a fruitful believer believers and fruitful church oh God oh Father Lord forgive us oh God Lord where we have withered Oh God, and help us not to be as that fig tree, oh God, that withereth away, oh God. Help us, oh God, Lord, not to be as those that are uh, that slothful servant, oh God, who wrapped up that talent in a na- t- pound in a napkin, oh God. Help us not to be as those husbandmen who scored, scorned your messengers and servants, oh God, that we might cr- lay claim to something. That was never ours, oh, Father. Lord, I just ask you, oh, Father. Lord, do a work in us, oh, God. Oh, Father, where we've missed the mark this week, oh, God. Have mercy, oh, God. Oh, Lord, wash us in your precious blood, oh, God. Oh, restore unto us again, oh, Father, the joy of your salvation, oh, God. Oh, Father, Lord, help us, oh, God. Oh, Father, to walk in humility before you, oh, God. Oh, Father, Lord, that we might be that spotless bride, oh, God. Lord, we worship you. Oh, Father, Lord, we glorify you, O oh God. Lord, we thank you, oh God.